Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. blog and podcast. Everyone thinks they know the law, but evidence is that they don't know how to use it. That is because everyone thinks about substantive laws like thou shalt not kill rather than the procedural laws which actually hold people to account only if they're caught. Hello, Neil Garfield here, and this is Thursday, September 12, 2019. Thou shalt not kill doesn't stop murder. Even if you catch the person who did it, nothing happens to them until the state fulfills its burden of bringing the charges in the proper way and proving it beyond a reasonable doubt. Tonight we'll talk about how pro se litigants and lawyers for homeowners have actually in real life won or successfully settled tens of thousands of cases. As most of you know, I speak from personal experience, nearly 45 years of litigation experience, over 2,000 trials, many victories in foreclosure litigation, and yes, some losses. And I've been on both sides of foreclosures. I used to represent banks and homeowner associations that foreclosed on mortgages and liens. I teach CLE courses for lawyers on trial procedure and pretrial litigation. This is a program that I designed to be intended to expand your awareness of procedural law, which is the basis for all judgments and orders entered by any court. The court doesn't enter a judgment or an order based upon the existence of a law that says, something must be done. The only reason that a court ever enters an order is that a case has been properly brought before it or a motion has been properly brought before it and the homework is done and the court is convinced that all of the procedural rules under due process have been met, that then and only then will the court actually rule. That applies to any claim or any defense or counterclaim or whatever. The rules of procedure and the laws of evidence, which include presumptions and inferences, are not well understood by most lawyers, much less pro se litigants, who have no legal training. 
But procedure is where the homeowner can win. And just as an introduction, let me again say this to drill in the same point I've been harping on for 13 years. In most cases, the path to victory lies not on some magic bullet, but rather old-fashioned litigation procedure that favors the party claiming foreclosure, but can still be turned against that same party if you follow the boring step-by-step procedures. If you're looking for a Perry Mason moment, you probably won't find it in foreclosure litigation. Remember, this program is being recorded, and you can always come back to this recording or any of my other shows by going to blogtalkradio.com and searching for The Neil Garfield Show. Comments and suggestions are always welcome and solicited. Write to Neil F. Garfield at hotmail.com. I am broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lives blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lives, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lives blog from listeners like you. Thank you. Thanks to the uptake in donations, which are continuing to improve, we are, uh, have been able to restart our schedule of free and paid seminars. In fact, this very program has been prepared uh, as a, a, a mini-seminar, which is free to anybody who's listening. And you can pass the link along to anyone you want. We'll do more as the donations roll in. I'm doing my best here for the last 13 years in uh, articles, seminars, appearances on radio and television to get the point across that homeowners can do and should win most of the foreclosure cases brought against them. Neither the blog nor the radio shows are supported by anything other than donations. I'm not selling anything here. I'm giving hope to those who need it and those who deserve that hope. And the seminars can't occur unless we have even more increase in donations to offset the cost of creating and presenting the seminar such that it can be brought within an affordable range or free to homeowners or lawyers. So go to the uh, homepage of the Living Lies blog and hit the donate button. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. If my work has value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows without payment or other support has value to you, then please chip in. Make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. It's not just me who is on this mission. It's you as well. And Without you, there is no mission. So this talk is meant to redirect attorneys and pro se litigants who are relying on some gimmick or magic bullet. Such things rarely work. They irritate the courts and make it more difficult to actually win. More often than not, they undermine your credibility on real issues. Those tactics are generally used by people that in the end, the foreclosure, who believe that in the end, that the foreclosure will result in the payment of their debt. That's not true. In the end, most of these foreclosures have not resulted in the payment of debt. 
And that is a counterintuitive statement. And even if you find it hard to believe, then you need to be willing to accept the possibility that that's true. Once you accept that possibility, a lot of the pieces fall into place. I win because I know that the foreclosure, even if successful, even if the sale occurs, and even if a bona fide third-party purchaser pays for the property, the money still doesn't go to anyone who, who was carrying the debt on their books. I know that the money gets distributed as revenue, and that means I know that the documents must be fake. So my strategy is to reveal one step at a time that the claim is fake and that the claimant is fake. The people who actually do win are willing to believe or are at least open to the possibility that this isn't a foreclosure at all. It is filed as a foreclosure, but it is really an arrogant attempt to weaponize the foreclosure process as part of a scheme to generate revenue without paying down the debt. Remember, I've said a thousand times, don't admit anything. Perhaps I forgot to say, don't even admit that this is a foreclosure, because a foreclosure is an equitable remedy to achieve one and only one result, restitution. Restitution means to give back. It's meant to achieve restitution of an unpaid debt. If the real purpose is not restitution for an unpaid debt, then it isn't a foreclosure. And if they're pursuing it anyway, then they are pursuing revenue, not a debt. If they're not looking to sell the property and give the money to the claimant, the named claimant, who is a party who paid for the debt, then it isn't a foreclosure. And if they're not looking to even pay a third party who owns the debt, then it is an illegal scheme for revenue. You only need to show the first part. You don't need to show the second if you're just defending. If you're making a claim, then you need to show the second. So the first part is to show that the claimant, the beneficiary who's named as, uh, as a successor beneficiary under a deed of trust or the mortgagee uh, or successor mortgagee under a mortgage, didn't pay for the debt. That's what it all boils down to. But, of course, there are many steps leading up to that. And frankly, for all its pleading problems and proof problems, the only real legally recognizable claim or defense to these efforts that covers the scheme in its entirety is federal or state civil RICO charges. But you don't necessarily need to go that far if you know how to use procedure. So let me run down my outline, which was on the blog, uh, of, of what I call my litigation menu. You start off with filing papers. Now, if you're initiating a lawsuit, then you're filing a lawsuit. If you're in a judicial state, then you've been served with a summons and complaint, and you're filing an answer, 
in which I said, don't admit anything, even that it's a foreclosure action. Uh, affirmative defenses, uh, and possibly a counterclaim. There is a difference in many jurisdictions and a lot of confusion between notice pleading and plausibility pleading. Just to go over it quickly, I'll see if I can come back to it before the show ends. Notice pleading basically is a short, plain statement of ultimate facts, which, if true, would entitle you to relief or to granting of a defense. Plausibility pleading has been litigated from one end to the other. Basically, the United States Supreme Court gave it some oxygen. It basically says that the judge has the power to evaluate the facts to see whether or not they are probably true without having a hearing. And unless there are further facts that would corroborate the short, plain statement of ultimate facts, the court will dismiss the pleading or defense or strike the defense. Now, most jurisdictions have in their rules notice pleading. But as I just said, the United States Supreme Court seems to have stuck its nose into this, and trial courts in general kind of use a mix, even though there is no permission to do so, between notice pleading and plausibility pleading. In notice pleading, it should be very short. Plausibility pleading, it needs to be a lot longer and more detailed. But as, uh, uh, as stated by the Hawaii Supreme Court, when considering this question and rejecting the whole plausibility issue, uh, it said that a complaint should not be dismissed for failure to state a claim unless it appears beyond doubt that the plaintiff can prove no set of facts in support of his or her claim that would entitle him or her to relief. That's, generally speaking, what is meant by due process. This is an evolving thing, but if you are drafting a lawsuit or drafting affirmative defenses and counterclaim, my suggestion is that without going crazy and filing a 100-page document, uh, you add some details, some meat to each one of the affirmative defenses and each claim that you have if you're filing a lawsuit or counterclaim. Second, often overlooked, especially in these cases, safe harbor correspondence and filing. Every state has uh, rules allowing for the recovery of reasonable attorney's fees and sanctions for the filing of frivolous pleadings. This is where you can flip it and make it lender beware instead of borrower beware, and lawyer beware because a lawyer could be subject to those sanctions. Basically, the notion, bottom line, all the time we have here, is that if it appears that the claimant did not ever 
participate in a transaction in which the claimant, not somebody else, in which the claimant purchased the debt for money, then they had no right to bring the claim. Why do I say that? Article 9, Section 203, Uniform Commercial Code, which has been completely adopted in all 50 states, even though there are some court decisions that would lead you in, in other directions. The fact is that law applies. Now, how they get there, for the most part, for the most part almost entirely, it's done through legal presumptions. If somebody says, I have the original note, that raises the presumption that they must have paid for it because why else would they have received it? And the note is evidence of the debt. So therefore, if they have the original note, then they must own the debt. And the only reason they would own the debt, again, is because they paid for it. That's a presumption. But it's not a conclusive presumption. It's a rebuttable presumption. And it's easily rebutted in discovery, but not so easy at trial, although it can be done. So the question you would ask in discovery, obviously, is uh, an interrogatory's request to produce a request for admissions relate to the existence or non-existence, actually, of any transaction in which the claimant, say it's U.S. Bank versus Smith, where U.S. Bank, either on its own behalf or as trustee, uh, uh, was part of a transaction in which it purchased the debt. Or if it's saying it's trustee for a trust, which if you look at the wording carefully, they're not really saying, but let's say it was, that some trustor or settlor had paid for the debt and owned it and then entrusted U.S. Bank with the debt. In every case in the remit trusts, you will see that the only thing entrusted to the to U.S. Bank as trustee is bare legal title. It has nothing to do with the debt. There was no transaction because much earlier on, a third party paid for it. So none of the intervening parties would have ever entered into any monetary transaction. So that the, the safe harbor correspondence of filing sets up the ability to recover attorney's fees and even sanctions. Uh, whereas under current law in most jurisdictions now, if you prove that they weren't part of the contract, you can't get attorney's fees based on that contract. There are issues that you need to be aware of if you're bringing a claim or you're thinking of bringing a claim for abusive process. It's not until the, the, the whole matter has been completely terminated and concluded in your favor that abusive process is actually a cause of action. Problems with fraud, uh, allegations of fraud, uh, while valid within the, the umbrella of a RICO action, uh, you, part of a fraud action is not just an untruthful statement, 
designed to defraud you, but reasonable reliance on that, and you usually find that the homeowner didn't believe what they were being told about someone being the owner of, of the debt, and therefore could not have reasonably relied on it. So that's not a really good cause of action to bring per se, although there are many others. So let me just touch on RICO. Very extreme pleading. That's not just notice pleading. It goes even beyond plausibility pleading. Uh, I could do a whole show on that. But for those lawyers who are listening, you need to research and get samples of, uh, and I published some of them on the blog, of RICO complaints that were done by federal agencies and in some cases by uh, uh, private litigants. In discovery, this is where you bring things to a head. If you wait to trial, you know, a surgeon doesn't make up his mind what organ to operate on after he gets into the operating room. And no lawyer or litigant should make up their mind what they're going to do in the courtroom after they get in the courtroom. They should know all that beforehand. So discovery is a process of asking questions and asking for documents and other media and so forth that might lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. But although a fishing expedition is allowed, it's got to be related to the issue at hand. And the issue at hand needs to be, does this plaintiff, does this so-called beneficiary um, um, ha have ownership of the debt by reason of having paid for it, or in the case of a trustee, by reason of having been entrusted with the debt by someone who did own it because they paid for it. And the answers you're going to get are going to be no answer. So, But you want to set the, the stage properly. You want to ask it in a qualified written request under RESPA. You want to ask it in a debt validation letter under the FDCPA. You want to ask it in interrogatories in the court action. You want to request for them to produce documents that show that transaction and proof of payment. You want to request admissions that there was no such transaction. And the key question is basically who paid for the debt and when. So then you receive the answers, which are going to be all objections or obfuscation. So then the next step is a motion to compel. When you file a motion to compel, it needs to be a compelling motion, just like any other pleading. It has to be convincing. And the first thing you do is you identify the issues in dispute and how your questions relate to those issues in dispute. I can't tell you how many times I've had to review pleadings that don't do that, and then they wonder why their motion to compel was denied. Also, a memorandum of law with possibly even cases attached is a good idea. They're still not going to comply, even if the judge orders them to give you the answers or give you the documents. 
So you have to file a motion for sanctions. And the judge will give him some more time, usually. And so you have to file a renewed motion for sanctions. And at that point, you're asking for them to be prevented from admitting any evidence that they own the debt. Uh, or at least to eliminate the presumption that they own the debt that arises from their so-called possession of the so-called original note. And then, to put the cherry on top, you file a motion in limine to make sure you're on record asking the court to bar them from producing evidence contrary to their unwillingness to supply information during discovery that they should have supplied. Also, must always, next step, look for a pretrial order from the judge. Very often, they will send one out. And in that, it's going to say, if you're going to have any objections to, to exhibits or witnesses or whatever, you need to file those by a certain date in advance of the trial, or you've waived the objections. I actually, among many other lawyers, have been caught by that because I didn't notice that provision of the pretrial order. And uh, uh, in a couple of cases I won anyway, but in many cases that definitely set us back. Motion to strike witnesses, especially, or witness list and exhibits based upon various things. Well, one of the things that is common is if they're required to give you a witness list, they give you 35 witnesses when they know they're only going to call one. So I file a motion to strike the witness list because I'm saying that, that giving us 35 names is the equivalent of not telling us who. And in 99% of all cases, with even with the most bank-biased judges, my motion is granted. And uh, not just me who does that, it's most of the successful foreclosure defense lawyers. Trial objections, you have to prepare for them. Just like a surgeon, you have to think in advance. What organ am I going for here? What's wrong with it? What's going to happen when I go in? That kind of thing. When you, if you have a trial objection to a question, and the witness has answered it, and your objection is sustained, which will only be if you raise it timely, at the moment that this is happening, that's what timely means, then a big mistake that I've often seen with litigators is they fail to follow it up with a motion to strike. So their objection is sustained, but the testimony is still in there as part of the record that could be relied upon by the trier of fact, which includes a judge who wants to rule for the bank side anyway. So if you move to strike, he has to grant it if he's already uh, sustained your, your, your objection, and he can no longer rely on that or any document that was contained within the testimony that you've just moved to strike. And then finally, at the end of it, you move for judgment or involuntary dismissal because they failed to prove that they fulfilled the condition preceding for a foreclosure, namely that they owned the debt by virtue of having paid for it. 
Now, all the other things about defective assignments and recording and notarization and witnesses and robo-signing, and all, they're all secondary. That's about the documents, and that's the rabbit hole that the bank wants you to go down. Mortgages and foreclosures are about money. Anyone who loses sight of that is heading down the wrong path. The mortgage is based upon a loan of money. The debt is based upon the fact that you got the money. The foreclosure is based upon the notion that not just that you didn't pay the debt, but that they're going to sell the property to pay the debt. And that's what is not happening. If you know that, you'll be able to target various attributes of their case and be able to defeat them. Thank you, and week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.